0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Father, as your people, we long to have the kind of faith that Jesus speaks of. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to hear him and to listen. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's not surprising that the disciples have a question. If you witnessed what they witnessed, you too might have a question in your mind. If you'd seen Jesus walk up to this leafy but barren fig tree, uh, speak a curse against it, and see it wither, uh, you might ask Jesus a question. But would it be the right question? Would it be the right question if you witnessed that with a question? that came from your lips, be the same one as the question that these disciples asked? Or would it be the right one? Because brothers and sisters, the disciples have a question, but I'm going to suggest to you the question they ask isn't the right one. It isn't the one that they ought to pose to Jesus. The disciples don't witness what Jesus has done and say, wow, why did you do that? They say, well, how did you do that? They want to know how he did it, not why he did it. But of those two questions, the most important one is surely why. But they don't ask that. And so Jesus answers the question they ask. He explains to them how he did what he did. But if why he did what he did matters, isn't it a shame? that we don't get the answer to that question. But maybe, maybe, if we pay attention, if we think about this, it may just be that Jesus answers not only the question that they ask, but also the question that they ought to have asked. The question that we ought to ask when we see Jesus withering this tree. Why? Why? So we're going to pay attention to both questions. How did he do it? But also, why did he do it? And also, what does it mean? What is the significance of what he's done? But we're going to start with the question that the disciples ask, not the one that they don't ask. The how question. How did you do this? How is it that you cursed the tree and it withered? Because Jesus answers that question and he says, because of faith. Faith is the answer. Ask yourself this question, though. Why don't they ask the why question? Why is the how question the question that comes naturally to the disciples? Well, I think it might be because the answer to the why question seems self-evident. Like, you don't ask questions if you already know the answer, And I think this is a question that the disciples probably already have a sense of, of, of an answer to, right? Jesus is hungry. He goes to the tree. It has leaves, and that suggests it also has fruit. But when he gets there looking for fruit, there is no fruit, so he curses it. I don't know about you, but I don't need theological explanations for that. Like, I don't need there to be some deep reason for why Jesus did that, because I've been there before. It may surprise you looking at me, but I know what it's like to be hungry. I've had that feeling before of hunger, of desperation, of like trying to find the right place to eat. Like on a road trip especially, if, if you have preferences about where you stop, and you could have stopped at that exit, but they didn't have what you were looking for, and you're waiting, and then finally you see it, and you get off the exit, and you probably have to drive a couple of miles because the place you want is never just right there, but you finally get there, and the, the illuminated sign is dark. So what do you do? You're hungry. You're not going to be satisfied. So you curse it. The only thing here that's different is that when I do that, the the, the restaurants don't usually wither. Like if anything, they they prosper afterwards. I, I don't understand. Right. So Jesus can do all of that and he can make it wither. But everything up to the withering, that's no mystery. That needs no explanation because as human beings, we experience that all the time. If you look at this in purely human terms, there's no mystery. Now, it is true, the hunger of Jesus is real, right? It's not a metaphor for something else. Jesus has a physical body. He's fully human and he feels physical hunger. But remember, this is the same Jesus who could fast for 40 days in the wilderness, right? It's not plausible that Jesus, his stomach was rumbling that morning and he got so mad that he decided to destroy a tree in in spite, right? There's clearly something more than just hunger going on. Jesus is no slave to hunger. Instead, although the hunger is real and very human, he uses the opportunity of the hunger and its frustration to give a divine sign. So this withered tree is a divine sign. It's just that the disciples aren't interested in divine signs. They're interested in how it's done. They're interested in the power. And in that, all too often, they are very similar to us. Jesus gives us signs. We don't ask why. We ask how. We ask how. Tell us about the power. Well, Jesus does. Jesus pulls back the curtain. He reveals the source of the power, and it turns out that it's faith. The reason why they ask the question is because they want the kind of power that Jesus possesses, right? They ask, how did you do it in hope that he could tell them how they could do it too. That's the reason why we ask questions like that. We want to have the power as they did. But people who want power like that reveal something about themselves. When you grasp for power, you reveal an inner sense of powerlessness. Like people who struggle to gain power in life are driven by a sense of powerlessness, which makes sense for the disciples because Jesus has just done something they couldn't do. And it's not just that they want to go around withering trees. They've had other frustrations, other experiences of powerlessness. In Matthew 17, the powerlessness was more vivid. The disciples were called upon to cast out a demon, and they failed. They couldn't do it. Jesus had to come to the rescue, and then afterwards they asked, why couldn't we do it? Why is it that only you could do it? Reveal to us the secret. Tell us how. And Jesus answered them the same way he answers now. Faith, he says. It's faith. In Matthew 17, as in here, he talks about a faith that can move mountains. With faith, he says, nothing is impossible. Moving mountains in Jewish literature is a kind of idiom. It's a metaphor. It's a way of expressing uh, the same thing we would express when we say doing the impossible. Right? So, Jesus doesn't mean literally moving mountains, but, but if you think about it, like, don't, let's not let him off the hook, because doing the impossible is just as good as moving mountains, right? Because moving mountains is impossible. So the point is that with faith, everything becomes possible. Whatever it is, whether it's, it's geographical manipulation, the withering of trees, the casting out of demons, or anything else, any obstacle, any sense of powerlessness, faith is the power that overcomes those things, Jesus says. The disciples weren't the only people feeling powerlessness. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the city of peace, that city felt powerless. That city was not its own master. Its destiny was controlled by others. It was ruled and and reigned over by foreign kings, the Herodians. And over them, the Romans, the people, did not control what was going on. They felt powerless to do anything about that. Powerless to throw out the Romans, powerless to restore the kingdom. The temple in the city, you might think of as a representation of that powerlessness. This place meant to be the the home of the presence of God. A building which had once been enclosed by the glory of God. And now, as we saw last week, a den of robbers. A place for Jesus to go in and clean it out. If you lived in a city like that, you too would feel powerless. And when you saw someone who had power to make things happen, to do things, uh, to make trees wither, to make demons run away, you'd want to know, how did you do that? Because you'd want that same kind of power for yourself. Like maybe you don't care about withering trees. Maybe you don't care about casting out demons even. But there is some kind of power that you'd like For yourself there is some area of life where your powerlessness frustrates you and if it was as simple as having enough faith and then you could overcome it then you could get what you want you'd be interested in knowing more about that right there's always something we'd like the power to overcome to do something about it jesus offered you power if faith would give you power, then you'd want what Jesus has to give, and you too would be asking. And Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When you hear those words, if you think to yourself, great, okay, I need to have faith and then I need to figure out this prayer thing because apparently if I pray and I have faith, then I get whatever I want. That's a good way of knowing if that's your inner dialogue that you're in the same boat as those disciples, the same boat as those people living in Jerusalem, that you too feel powerless and you are looking for power to accomplish your will. In other words... We, supposedly faithful people, want to know more about the power of God. We want to experience the power of God. We want to wield the power of God. But what we're not interested in, what we're not asking questions about, is how the power of God serves the plan of God. We're interested in the power, but not the plan. We want the power, but not the plan. We want the ability to do what we want. But the power of God serves the plan of God to accomplish what God wants. And what God wants is what the truly faithful want, or at least it's what the truly faithful want to want, even though they realize they don't always measure up. Now, Jesus had the power to wither the tree because of faith. That's the how. He possessed faith. But what about the question they didn't ask? What about the why? Why would he use that power to do this? If the power of God serves the plan of God, then how did withering a tree further the plan of God? To understand the use of that power, we have to ask the other question. We have to know the why, not just the how. Because faith doesn't just serve whoever possesses it. Faith fits within the larger plan of God. So why did Jesus curse the tree? Why did he do that? Well, if the answer to the first question is simple, faith, the how is faith, The why is simple, too. The why is faithlessness. Faithlessness. Think about fig trees for a moment. Fig trees and what they represent. I mean, if you think about it, ever since the fall, we human beings have owed a debt to the fig tree. Because when we were at our most exposed, it was the fig tree who came to the rescue offering uh, not a metaphorical but a literal fig leaf to cover and clothe Adam and Eve. And ever since then, the fig tree has been for us a symbol and a sign, a symbol of life, a symbol of flourishing. Uh, A fig tree speaks to human cultivation, to civilization, to growth. All of that symbolized in a fig tree. But not this tree. Not the tree in Matthew 21. The tree in Matthew 21 made promises, but it didn't keep them. If you looked at that tree, there were leaves. And seeing the leaves, you would expect fruit. But those leaves made a promise that the tree did not fulfill. It looked like this tree could satisfy hunger, but it sent people away empty instead. And that is symbolic too. In Luke 13, Jesus shares a parable. It's in your order of worship. The parable of the barren fig tree. He spins a hypothetical that actually matches up to this physical event. And in that parable, a master is actually patient for a long time with a tree that does not bear fruit. Even after he pronounces judgment, he gives the order... For the barren tree to be cut down, the vine dresser intercedes and he agrees to wait even longer before the judgment. But he says ultimately, if the tree doesn't bear fruit, then it must be cut down. Now, that parable obviously speaks to God's patience, to his mercy, his willingness to extend those deadlines. But it also speaks to a coming judgment that there will ultimately be a reckoning that those fruitless trees will one day be cut down. Now, people who heard that parable were probably thinking of some Old Testament prophecy that they would have been familiar with. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 5, there is a long discourse also Exerted in your order of worship, in which God invites the people of Jerusalem and Judah to essentially advise him on what he should do about the vineyard he planted that did not yield the fruit that he planted it for. He planted a vineyard to bring up fruit. It bring up the wrong kind of fruit or no fruit at all. What should? Be done? And the answer, of course, is agricultural. It needs some pruning. It may even need to be uprooted. And God gives in that prophecy, in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, this word of warning He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, there's going to be a reckoning on this vineyard that I've planted, on this barren, fruitless tree. It is coming. In the words of the old folk song, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Judgment is coming. And this act of Christ's is a warning of what happens to fruitless trees for the Old Testament order, the Levitical priesthood, for this physical city of peace that was anything but, for this temple that was meant to be a house of prayer, but instead was a den of robbers, that day was fast approaching. Now, in Isaiah 5, that unheeded warning led to the exile of the people and the destruction of the temple. And now this warning in Matthew 21, also unheeded, was leading the same way. If you look in Luke 13, it not only shares the parable of the barren fig tree, but at the end, there is a moment that is repeated in other Gospels where Jesus laments over the state of Jerusalem. Some of the words he says in Luke 13 are interesting. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So those words are from Psalm 118 as we saw two weeks ago. Those are words that the people are cheering on the triumphal entry. Jesus here is speaking them as a kind of judgment. There's a, 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 a curse coming home to roost On the city that he laments over. The why of the cursed tree is simply this it's faithlessness. Faithlessness. Jesus bears fruit because Jesus has faith. The city of peace doesn't bear the fruit of peace. If the temple doesn't bear the fruit of prayer, there can be only one explanation fruitlessness reveals faithlessness. So Jesus has answered not only how, but also why. The reason why the tree is cursed is because it did not bear fruit. And symbolically, the people are the tree, and the condemnation that falls on them comes because they do not have faith. They do not receive him. God's blessings come to his people through the bond of his covenant. But the covenant includes curses, too, for those who are faithless. We saw last week in our lectionary reading from Joshua 21, the covenant renewal at Shechem, that Joshua makes the people bear witness against themselves as they reaffirm their covenant with God. He says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, that he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And now Jesus, who remember is a namesake of that same Joshua, enters Jerusalem and the people are indeed bearing witness against themselves as they turn against him. So this cursed tree stands as a warning. But we already know that it's a warning that they're not going to heed. This fruitless, faithless city will not turn to receive its king in faith. In fact, just the opposite. In a few days' time, they'll nail him to another cursed tree, to the cross. That's the direction this is heading in. If you think about that for a moment, there are some things that should teach us, should get our attention, should make us think a little bit. If Jesus curses the tree for its fruitlessness... The fact is that we too have been fruitless. And this ought to bring some conviction into our hearts. The tree was made to be fruitful, but so were we. We were made to glorify Him. We were made to uh, do works that honor Him. We were made to delight in Him, to enjoy Him forever. And to the extent that we do not do those things, we aren't doing what we were made to do, just like that tree wasn't doing what it was created to do, and where we fail to live up to what God has made us to be, Jesus' cursing of this tree should wake us up to the need for repentance. It's not a hopeless warning, but it is a warning that we need to turn from our fruitlessness and bear fruit. Now this curse, if you see it in this light, is a form of justice. Right? It is the rightful role of a judge to sentence a wrongdoer to punishment. It's the rightful role of a gardener to prune and maybe even uproot a fruitless tree. So what Jesus is doing here isn't some act of agricultural you know, vandalism. Jesus is doing something that is right to do to a fruitless tree. His cursing of the tree should remind us of his warnings, of his examples, of his chastening love. Like, once we see the power of Jesus, we should never stop looking until we see the plan of Jesus as well. Like, what that power is doing in the world. Like, this act should encourage us to ask why, why, not just how. Finally, this tree promise to satisfy, but that promise was a lie. Jesus cursing the tree shows his righteous anger towards every false god, every false savior, every path or way or plan that promises to satisfy the hunger inside you that only God can fulfill. We should feel God's anger towards these lying idols too, especially the ones that have seduced us. It's right to want to root them out. It's right to want to wither the idols which have deceived us. Because repentance, if it means anything, means to stop looking for satisfaction from barren trees. To turn away from them to something else. Which brings us to the last thing I want to say, which has to do with the what. The, the reason for the why. Like, like what is the significance of this divine sign that Jesus has given us. If God's plan was just to send Jesus to Jerusalem to pronounce the judgment, then Matthew's Gospel could end right here. It could end with this terrible sign of the withering of the tree. That withered fig tree would be enough to warn us all that the time had come, that the payment was going to be made. We've borne witness against ourselves And we've been unfaithful, and now the judgment. And we would know that that judgment is just. But the gospel continues because the plan goes farther than judgment. It goes all the way through the cross and into the grave and out the other side. To fulfill that plan, Jesus would have to go to his death. He would have to stretch out his hands and be nailed to the cursed tree that embodied all our sin. The cross represented the curse of sin leading to death, and the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made on that barren tree would end the reign of sin and death forever. It was through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that that barren tree of the cross would become for us a tree of life. That fruitless hanging tree, through the shedding of his blood, blossomed. And bore fruit for the healing of the nations, as John says in Revelation 22, verse 2. In fact, John says more. He says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, when the disciples saw the withered fig tree, they thought, What power? How can we gain power like this? And you and I do the same thing when we witness the power of God. Give us power, Lord, and then we won't have to keep begging you for stuff. Give us power, and then we won't be so dependent. Give us power, and we can do things for ourselves. But that barren tree that bloomed in the cross gives us more than power. It gives us fullness. It gives us life. So let us cry out, not for power, but for life. Let us cry out, feed us, Lord, satisfy us, Lord, fill us with you. You long for power to overcome your powerlessness, but what you need is completion. What you need is not independence, it's fullness. It's to be filled through your union with Christ. The fruit of Jesus' cross is for you. And if you're alive to the power of faith in him, then the fruit of the cross is not just for you. The fruit is you. You are the fruit of that barren tree that blossoms because of his grace. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org, We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.